Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We've got elections today in West Virginia and Nebraska. And usually right here in this space, I talk about the news like those elections. And then the spiel will be analysis. And today the spiel will be analysis. But now I'm going to do an analysis of analysis because I was thinking of West Virginia and Nebraska. And it struck me that those two states have the best and the worst state songs. To be fair, beautiful Nebraska, their song is tied for worst with about 35 other states. You could make the case that there are a few that are clearly underneath it, like uh, Maryland, My Maryland, because that song is advocating secession, calling Lincoln a tyrant, a despot, and a vandal. It includes the lyric, huzzah, she spurns the northern scum. And this is why after repeated attempts by the Maryland General Assembly to repeal the song, attempts in 1974, 1980, 1984, 2001, 9, 16, 18, and 19, they finally got it removed in 2021. And then you have Carry Me Back to Old Virginia, which is still recognized as the traditional song with lyrics like, it's sung from a slave's perspective. So lyrics like, this is where this old darkie's heart am longed to go. There's where I labored so hard for my old massa. Yeah, quite problematic. Most of the other state songs aren't offensive. They're so inoffensive as to be generic. I also don't think, contrary to the state anthems, hail Massachusetts, hail Minnesota, and hail South Dakota, that no one is going to be hailing your state from out of town unless they're actually weather reports and I got it wrong. Think about missed opportunities, right? New York could have gone with Sinatra. New York, New York. Nope, Rochester would be offended. California, so many choices. They went with I Love You, California music by Abe Frankenstein. Then there's Nebraska's Blantham, plainer than the vast expanse from Lincoln to Lake McConaughey. Beautiful Nebraska, peaceful. I can't really help that that much. But if you think about it, the best state song in the land is Take Me Home Country Roads. Almost heaven, West Virginia, That, along with the other John Denver song, Rocky Mountain High, are perhaps the only two state songs you would sing if they weren't attached to states. People did sing them. Take Me Home Country Roads went to number two in 1971. It's so good. The chorus is so melodic that when you think about it, listen to the chorus, you know it. Country Roads, Take Me Home, To the Place I Belong, West Virginia, Mountain Mama, Take Me Home, Country Roads. Those lines don't even rhyme. And no one has complained or possibly even noticed. Country Roads is so good. I believe I can take the lyrics to beautiful Nebraska, sing them in my voice, and improve them. Let's see. Let me pull up those lyrics now. Beautiful Nebraska. Peaceful prairie, 
laced with rivers and the hills of sand. Dark green valleys cradled in the earth. Where else would you find valleys? That's how cradles work. Head south to Kansas, hang a Louis. Through Missouri, then through Kentucky, Route 60 becomes 64. And soon you'll find you are in West Virginia. So much better than Nebraska as a song. On the show today, it is that promise spiel, no singing, don't worry, elections in those two states. But first, Jeff Nussbaum is, as of, I don't know, 12 days ago, freshly unemployed from the Biden White House. He was the senior speechwriter for the president, and he has written really interesting book, extremely well executed, to which he adds expert analysis, his own, some investigative journalism, and we will talk about undelivered the never-heard speeches that would have rewritten history. Jeff Nussbaum up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So you know me, you know that I'm a fan of rhetoric, political rhetoric, presidential rhetoric, all sorts of rhetoric. And though you didn't ask, I will tell you my most overrated and underrated political speeches of my lifetime. Underrated, although it's not very underrated, it's a well-regarded speech, but it really is exquisite, is Ronald Reagan, written by Peggy Noonan, The Boys of Puente du Hoc. What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? 
what inspired all the men of the armies that met here. We look at you and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. The men of Normandy had faith that what they were doing was right, faith that they fought for all humanity, faith that a just God would grant them mercy on this beachhead or on the next. The boys of Pointe du Hoc. Pointe du Hoc. I don't know how to pronounce French well, but he knew how to deliver that speech. It was evocative. The most overrated Ted Kennedy 1980 Democratic National Convention. It's just a litany of synonyms. The work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives. It's just a list of saying the same thing. And what does it say? Anyway, someone who says a lot and knows about others who say a lot is Jeff Nussbaum, senior speechwriter for Joe Biden as of two weeks ago. He is both author and speechwriter. And in this new book, Investigative Journalist, he's written Undelivered, the never heard speeches that would have rewritten history. Jeff Nussbaum, welcome to The Gist. Great to be with you, Mike. And by the way, I don't disagree with your most underrated and overrated. I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, they were excited for Ted, I understand, but the work goes on, the cause endures, the dream shall never die. Where did it go? Where did it take us? What, what was the point? So, so, so I don't want to badmouth Bob Shrum, who, who wrote the speech sure. and, and has helped me throughout my career. But, but my complaint with the speech is more that it created this, uh, this continuing democratic romanticism of failure. And so the more we keep saying like, people are best when they're at their lowest, especially our candidates, the, the more we kind of romanticize the thing we don't want our candidates to do, which is lose. Right. Don't tell me about the fight unfought. Right. Tell me about the fight going forward. The noble loser who did not compromise his goals. Guess what they are? They are still the loser. Yeah, James Carville told me years ago, he's like, look, you want someone you agree with 85% of the time who can get 51% of the vote? Or you want someone you agree with 100% of the time who gets 49% of the vote? So you brought that up in the book. Let's just use it as a jumping off point about the idea of writing a speech that you don't totally or necessarily agree with. You were writing for Tom Daschle then. And it was, which speech was it? Was it a, a pro-Iraq war speech? So there, there are a couple, and I love Tom Daschle, and he's been a very special person in, in my life, and we could use a lot more like him in American politics. So there was a, a pro-Iraq war speech, which I um, didn't love. And then after September 11th, there was all sorts of truly bonkers legislation being proposed. And I think the one you're referencing is there was a, a bill to put Gun, to let pilots carry guns in the cockpit. Right. And, and, and Tom Daschle had been in the Air Force. He had a pilot's license. I asked him about it. He said, look, when you're a pilot, the last thing you want to be is a cowboy in the cockpit. Something happens on the plane, get it to the ground. You don't want to be shooting. So I said, so we're against it? And he was like, no, we're for it. And, <laughs> and I was just like, this, is, this makes no sense. Now, what I didn't know is that he was going to work his legislative magic to put enough caveats and rules into the bill to make it so that very few pilots would actually carry guns in the cockpit. But in that moment, that's when I had this conversation with, with, with James Carville, where I said, I, I don't agree with this. And he said, look, you can agree with him not 100% of the time, but as long as he gets 51% of the vote, you still have a chance to fight another day. This conversation with Carville, you called him up. He was like your Yoda, your guru at that point in your life? He was. He was. Um, he, he had said, uh, I, I had ghostwritten a book with him um, years before, um, and he had, uh, 
he had said, uh, I had asked him his speech writing pro- or his re- book writing process, and he said, it begins with these words, get me a Jew. So given that I had, <laughs> given that I had met his sole criterion uh, for being a writer, uh, he, he became sort of a, a guru of mine. Oh, my God. But think of all, the, you know, think of all the other choices that he could have gone with from uh, from Jackie Mason to, I guess, Stephen Miller. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> what a wide been... range of people who could have ghostwritten a James Carville book. Indeed. <laughs> OK, so that uh, Dashiell speech, what did you do? You wrote out the speech you didn't mostly agree with, emphasizing the points you did, or did the politics of the moment obviate that consideration? The politics obviated the consideration a little bit, but I wrote the best speech I could. And speechwriting is kind of an art and a craft. And I say that speechwriters are like lawyers, like a good lawyer could argue both sides of the case. And a good speechwriter should at least be able to apply the craft to arguing whichever case they want. And as I remember it, you know, I did my best arguing for, okay, what are the merits of this? You know, is it a deterrent? Maybe it's a deterrent and we'll go with that. So, so. I argued the best case I could argue, um, but I but but this was not necessarily an existential moment for me because I knew pretty quickly early on um, that this wouldn't really become the the law of the land. Well, the chapter in the book this is most reminiscent of is the Cuban Missile Crisis when there were two speeches written, one justifying different courses of action with different degrees of militarism. And this is where I think you uh, break some news and do some investigatory work. But why don't you tell, I think we all know the Cuban Missile Crisis. Why don't you lay out what the two policy positions were? And then I'll ask you about the speeches. Yeah, thank you. This is really a, a, a harrowing chapter. So at the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the military leaders, by and large, including Air Force General Curtis LeMay, wanted to go in fast with about 800 airstrikes and take out the Cuban missile sites. Others wanted to take a slightly more slowed down approach of a naval blockade, blockade ships going into Cuba. The cabinet divided, this sort of war cabinet divided into two groups, the the airstrike group and the blockade group. And Robert Kennedy basically said to each group, you're going to present your recommendations to the president. And the first thing you have to present is a speech outlining that course of action. Right. So let me stop you there. So bombs away. LeMay, as they call him, obviously wants to bomb. And by the way, history shows that since Cuba already had nuclear missiles on the island, it would have been a gigantic disaster. And then there was the blockade, which was what was followed. But writing for Robert Kennedy to say, we're going to do it and think it out through speeches, it seems unusual. How usual is it to start with a speech to try to organize and clarify the mind? And do you think that there's something about the way Robert and John F. Kennedy just wizards with words and some of the most eloquent public figures of the last hundred years, do you think that they sort of thought things out through rhetoric? I do. It's it's not usual to start with the speech, but the more I did research on this chapter, I thought, what a fascinatingly useful way of doing things. Kennedy basically said, both Kennedy brothers, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to explain it to the American people. And if I'm incapable of explaining it to the American people, maybe it's not the right course of action. And so the, the group's went off and put together their best arguments and put these speeches together. And there's some great audio of these early meetings where uh, Bombs Away LeMay says, 
Mr. President, you're in a pretty bad fix. And Kennedy snaps at him. What'd you say? And LeMay says, you're in a bad fix. And Kennedy kind of huffs and says, you're in there with me. And um, and so they go off and, and they come up with these two different speeches for these two courses of action. And what we found in the archives is the airstrike speech. And when, when speechwriters write speeches, they'll often put parentheticals for information that hasn't arrived yet, information that we're waiting to, waiting to hear about. And sometimes it's little stuff, who am I acknowledging, or a p- piece of policy analysis. We're waiting for that final score from the CBO, that sort of thing. It, so exactly. TK yeah. in the margin. It's, it is exactly TK, mm-hmm. except in this speech we have follows a description of first reports of action. And at the time, they're thinking, oh, the first reports of action. Did we lose any planes? Were innocent Cubans killed? But what we didn't realize at the time, what they didn't realize at the time, is that these missiles, many of them were already operational. And command had already been handed uh, over to the commanders on the ground. So they didn't even need to go to Moscow. And so this parenthetical hold for first reports of action could have been Armageddon. And only later did we realize that First reports of action could have been America in an arc from Boston down through Omaha, basically wiped off the map. Right. Or our basic Guantanamo vaporized. And it the was two, such the a, two ends of that parentheses flipped on their sides could have been the entire eastern seaboard. That's that's <laughs> perfectly well described. Or I used to use this quote from from President Carter that on, on your headstone, it has the year you're born and the year you die. And there's a dash in the middle. And Carter used to say to God, that dash is everything. I, I keep saying to humanity, this parenthetical could have been everything. And so um, so we see this we see this speech and everyone denies writing it years on. Anyone who could have been involved denies writing it. And the question is, do they deny writing it because they just don't want to be associated with something that could have been so terribly wrongheaded? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so one of the things I did just for fun in this book, I have the, the draft of it. I have a lot of papers around it. I had an FBI forensic analyst look at the handwriting to say, like, who at least edited it and had hands on it? So we know Mick George Bundy, the national security advisor, absolutely edited it. Yeah. But Ted Sorensen, who had been the president's wordsmith, actually denied writing it for many years. But I found an old interview he gave in which he kind of admitted it. And then I did even more work and looked at some of the words used were ones that were only used by Sorensen. So the evidence is largely circumstantial, but pretty convincing that Sorensen, who had been a conscientious objector to World War II, claimed he could never have written such a thing because he was a pacifist and a conscientious objector actually did write the speech. Do you think that it was um, him denying it out of self-preservation or his brain and memory denying it to protect himself? I mean, can we know if he honestly stopped believing that he ever wrote the draft? I, I think it's, I think he, I think he honestly believed that he didn't write the draft. I think your brain plays tricks. And Robert Kennedy at the, at the time said, we were all so exhausted, all of our brains were playing tricks on us. But I did this experiment, and you alluded to it earlier, where I knew I wrote the speech for Tom Daschle in favor of the use of force resolution in Iraq. I knew it. I could picture where I was. I could picture all of it. I went back and read it. I didn't remember writing a word of it. Hmm. And I think the brain just, you know, eliminates some of that stuff that's abhorrent. Yeah. And I think in Ted Sorensen's case, I, I believe him when he says, he doesn't remember writing it, uh, but he actually did write it. 
So there are a few categories of speeches that I created as I uh, read your book. The Kennedy airstrike speech is in a category of speeches not delivered out of prudence um, or even speeches that had they been delivered would have been disastrous. Most of your speeches aren't that. They're closer calls and they really get to the author's uh, ambivalence and maybe the ambiguity of the situation. So you start with John Lewis, which is a great example of, I guess, discretion being the better part of valor? It's it's discretion being the better part of valor, and it's another thing. And I've worked on a lot of Democratic conventions. The other thing it is, is subsuming a little bit of one's own brand and agenda for the success of the larger enterprise. Mm -hmm. So here's a case where John Lewis wanted to be the voice of, of the activists. And he wrote, and he was young at the time, and he wrote a fiery speech, um, you know, with lines like, uh, you know, to Kennedy, your civil rights bill is too little and too late. Um, uh, to people who counsel patience, patience is a dirty and nasty word. Um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna march through Georgia and like like Sherman, burn segregation to the ground. So this is this is the way I've said it is if if King wanted to talk about the dream, which actually early on he didn't, Lewis wanted to talk about the nightmare. Mm -hmm. And and he was he was gung-ho on it. And a couple nights before the event itself, one of his aides trying to get him a little publicity put his speech out for people to, for the press to see copies. And this caused a, a total blow up. And the organizers were like, John, you can't say this. If you say it, the diocese, the Catholic church, which has sort of blessed the event and which and whose blessing Kennedy needs to embrace the event, they're going to pull out. And and so they start asking Lewis to start changing his speech. And he starts getting really understandably frustrated. Uh, you know, he's like, I'll change this line, but not a word more. OK, this line, but not a word more. And slowly he gets ground down, but he also gets his back against the wall. And he wants to basically keep everyone from defanging this march. And finally, finally, at the very last minute, and in the book, I find this wonderful image of Lewis in the back of the Lincoln Memorial, sort of underneath Abraham Lincoln's arm, rewriting his speech um, to the liking of the organizers, because he has basically been begged, don't screw this up for all of us who have worked so hard for it. This is in the category of tactical compromise. And I think we know given the success of uh, the March on Washington and Martin Luther King's speech, that it turned out right, the right choice, especially because he was the undercard. He wasn't the featured speaker. Yeah, and I'll just give you, I'll give you a couple examples, right? He wanted to say in good conscience, we cannot support wholeheartedly the administration's civil rights bill for it is too little and too late. And he changed it to, we come here today with a great sense of misgiving. We come here today with a great sense of misgiving. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. And then he added to, in its current form. Mm -hmm. So he hedged and hedged and hedged. But there was another lesson here, which is people don't hear exactly the words you say. They also hear how you say them. And he ultimately delivered this with such passion and outrage and indignation that the words, as, as vitally important as they were, became a little bit secondary because people still got the message. We must say, wake up, America, wake up. 
for we cannot stop and we will not and cannot be patient. And also, if the most extreme statements were made by the someone on the undercard, not Martin Luther King, it could have overwhelmed the message of Martin Luther King. I mean, it's possible that I have a dream wouldn't have resonated to this day had all the press coverage been of, you know, John Lewis or speakers at the rally saying that they don't believe in the civil rights bill. Yeah, ultimately an event is is a whole and and sort of the hotter undercard paved the way for the healing balm of 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 Martin Luther King's words. Well, it seems like that's the more common theme, at least in the book and probably in speeches that were not given that are remembered, that the original impetus is to let her rip and then uh, different forces or considerations came to bear. And in the drawer is the more fiery version of the speech. In the book, are there many counter examples to that? There are a couple. Um, and, and sometimes the letter rip draft is is catharsis Mm -hmm. sometimes you need to write the letter rip draft to see if you're really ready to let her rip one of my favorite examples in the book is in the mid-70s mayor kevin white um you know boston was going through this um this real convulsion around busing to desegregate the schools and in particular to desegregate south boston high Uh, and there was a judge in the wealthy suburb of wellesley who basically put in place the order and, and wiped his hands of it and said, all right, Boston, you figure it out. And the, the mayor was trying his best to make it work. But but South Boston, it was a civil war. I mean, they were throwing, as kids from Roxbury were being bussed into South Boston, they were throwing bricks at buses, shattering windows, chanting horrible things. Um, police officers were getting mown over. Um, police officer died. It was a really, really ugly time. And, and Mayor White basically said, I'm not doing this anymore. Like he, he was a progressive guy, but he basically was about to be in Northern George Wallace and stand in the schoolhouse door and, and, and say, I'm going to shut down South Boston High before I'm going to integrate South Boston High. And I'm going to let the, the most conservative elements in our city, the most conservative parents, I'm actually going to let the, let support them in their attempt to overturn the decision. And he writes this state of the city speech where he announces these things and then has a 11th hour change of heart and basically says, we're a nation of laws. I don't love this decision. I don't love the way it's being enacted, but, but we're going to do it and you're going to suck it up. And he says it and shockingly, he wins reelection on it. And I, I just, I love the chapter because A, this chapter in history feels so close to us now, still in so many ways. And B, it's a reminder that politicians doing unpopular things in service of a larger goal, if they're willing to actually have the backbone and stand up for it, can win. This yeah. was 80% unpopular in Boston and he won re-election. Even if you're not so interested in the rhetoric, just being able to live the considerations of the speakers at the time, Illinois Governor John Peter 
Alt-Geld talking about uh, the Haymarket riots in 1896. I hadn't considered that or Einstein's address about Israel or Barry Jenkins' undelivered best picture remarks for Moonlight. They're collected in this book called Undelivered, the never heard speeches that would have rewritten history. We've been speaking with the author, Jeff Nussbaum, who I'm going to invite you to come on again tomorrow and we'll bring it up to the president and also talk Kennedy's. Is that okay, Jeff? That works. Thanks a lot. And now, the spiel. Elections in far-flung states like Nebraska and West Virginia, or if you're from Iowa or Pennsylvania, near-flung states, they always need a hook. For Huskers or Mountaineers today, these are just your elections, your primary elections. For everyone else, they're a sign or a symbol or a signal applicable to your experience. The usual way to handle this is to posit that these elections, not happening to you or to someone else, are nevertheless a reflection and a referendum on national political moods. But in 2022, all these elections are now in service of a different purpose, at least narratively, if not actually. They're said to be and covered as a sign of Trump's influence. In Ohio, Trump endorsed J.D. Vance with the ringing words, I endorse thee, J.P. Mandel. American Carnage met Hillbilly Elegy, and Trump's endorsement really did seem to be the decisive factor in earning Vance the Republican nomination for Senate. In Texas, Trump went 33 for 33 in his endorsements. This prompted the CNN headline, the old codger still got it. No, I'm kidding. The headline was, why Donald Trump's 33-0 record is a lot less impressive than it looks, lot in all caps. The Washington Post covered that as where it mattered most, Trump's Texas endorsement didn't get the job done. The argument was that a few of Trump's endorsed candidates might not eventually win their runoffs, but as I pointed out to Philip Bump, who wrote that Washington Post article, Trump still was 33-0, and also the Texas Tribune's coverage of the endorsement did convince me that the Trump nod did bolster his preferred candidate in the attorney general race, Ken Paxton. Paxton finished the primary at 43%. George P. Bush, yep, that guy, that guy's nephew or grandson, he got 23% of the vote. He's Jeb's boy, George P. Election day, by the way, in uh, Texas or the runoff will be decided in two weeks. Today, we have the West Virginia and the Nebraska primaries where Trump has endorsed a total of four candidates. Two of those are shoe-ins. That's one of the reasons why his figures like 33-0 and look good. He endorsed candidates who are going to win anyway. But one race in West Virginia pits Alex Mooney against David McKinley. McKinley's a moderate who actually voted to certify the election and for the committee to look into the insurrection. McKinley also, unlike Mooney, voted for the infrastructure bill, which of course will play very well in West Virginia. It brings, depending on estimates, $4.5 billion to $6 billion to the state. That's $2,500 to $4,000 per West Virginian one of the highest levels of per capita funding in the U.S. to a state ranked by U.S. News as having the worst infrastructure in the country. So a selling point right wrong, not in almost tax haven West Virginia where voting needed for money 
right? 31% of the roads need a repair. Voting for that is something of a liability, at least in the Republican primary. That is how deep the animosity is towards taxes, even if other Americans are paying them. Mooney and Trump criticized McKinley for supporting Build Back Better, which he voted against. And it doesn't even matter because the bill never became law because it was opposed by West Virginian Joe Manchin. Now, to make his point that he didn't support Build Back Better, that he's a good representative for the interests of the state, McKinley countered with an endorsement of his own. He called upon his own roguish, plays-by-his-own-rules politician who Democrats hate. I've always said, if I can't go home and explain it, I can't vote for it. And that's why I oppose Build Back Better. For Alex Mooney and his out-of-state supporters to suggest David McKinley supported Build Back Better is an outright lie. David McKinley has always opposed reckless spending because it doesn't make sense for West Virginia. Alex Mooney has proven he's all about Alex Mooney, but West Virginians know David McKinley is all about us. I'm David McKinley and I approve this message. Joe Manchin has an approval rating of 69% in West Virginia. Trump got 69% of the vote in West Virginia in 2020. McKinley also has the endorsement of Governor Jim Justice, whose approval rating is 72%. And Justice has been called the Donald Trump of West Virginia. But the Donald Trump of being actually Donald Trump is a Mooney man. And it seems his endorsement has at least seemed to have helped Mr. Mooney to establish a sizable lead in the polls. Mooney and McKinley are both current members of the House, but West Virginia is losing population and losing a seat. They're both fighting over this one. And who wins it will, I believe, not so much prove who has the better endorser, but the better argument. It's either bringing money to the state is good or spending money on the federal level is always bad. Over in Nebraska, the Trump-endorsed candidate is actually trailing in the polls after establishing a lead a while back. But since then, some damning news has affected Chuck Herbster, KMTV3 explains. Charles Herbster held a press conference this afternoon, his first since the Nebraska Examiner dropped its report last week. Eight women, including State Senator Julie Slama, accuse Herbster of sexual assault. She and six others say they were groped. Another said she was forcibly kissed after being cornered in private. Herbster offered this defense on a radio show that he's a man of etiquette and agriculture. My blessed grandmother in Falls City, Nebraska, taught me how to treat ladies and respect ladies. And that's open the car door for them. That's help them put on their coat. That's pull out the chair. So uh, I'm sorry, but uh, from a farmer's standpoint, uh, everything that's going on is just pure BS. Herbster did chair the Farmers and Ranchers for Trump Committee in 2020. He also was at the January 6th Stop the Steal rally. And though the cause stole his heart, he did not steal podia or items from Nancy Pelosi's office. As he said, he did not join the protesters inside the Capitol. Herbster, whose name I can't hear without thinking of this SNL sketch. The Tomster, the Sandsters, the Billster. Herbster was a huge Trump donor, giving more than $1.1 million to Trump and Trump-related causes, thus earning him a place alongside my pillow founder, Mike Lindell, on Politico's 2021 list of big Trump donors who themselves are thinking of higher office. As far as if or what Nebraska Republicans are thinking of him, we will find out tonight. The Trump protege may match the master by getting his supporters to ignore or disbelieve multiple accusations of groping. 
Or maybe it will just show that if you're a celebrity, they let you get away with it. If you're a large donor to a celebrity politician, they are less forgiving. Polls close at 8 p.m. Central. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions and chair of the Lauderdale County Corrections Oversight Board. She corrects the corrections. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.